Irene pulled in at midnight Lit on smoking beer Proudly crawled to the porch and called Your favorite child is here Ma asked where you're living And are you living right within She said with fire like a gospel choir A saint immune to sin Old Irene Like a raven bomb She's cutting every rug And killing every judge She comes up on Old Irene Never lacking charm Said I was feeling good Pouring visine into her eyes See her trembling hand was to understand Some things you can't disguise All said not for nothing But you don't seem to be quite well Irene read back with a smiling crack How could you? Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Today, joining us, Adarsh Mashrou, Mike Johnson, our host, Tom Dupree. And our conversation starter today is going to be the case for building wealth with stocks, not homes. Also, we want to give a shout out and a thanks to McLeod's Coffee House on Southland Drive for hosting us for the first hour. It's a great spot. Go check it out. Over to you, Tom. Okay. This uh, is, I sort of have this thing going with Ian No right now. Uh, you know, a good songwriter tells stories in their songs. And this kid has evidently got the gift. He's 31 years old. Uh, you know, I'd like to meet him. I'm trying to get an interview with him. It's not easy when he's hot, you know, because they kind of shield him. I've been through this with musicians. I, I kind of know a little bit of the drill. They're very special people, and you're supposed to understand that. But, you know... If we can get an interview with him, I'm going to ask him about these characters in his songs. So now I have two of his albums, and I do not listen to CDs. And I'm driving around, that, and I'm listening to that first CD of his. I've listened to it about three times, and now I've got the new one, and I'm into it. And uh, he's a songwriter and a storyteller. And he's got a voice that it's in the lines of a Bob Dylan or a you know a John Prine kind of thing, and which is that gravelly sort of folk singer voice. And just I, you know, and, and the guy that produces him is also the guy that produces 
this kid Sturgill Simpson that I can't really grasp. And he did some kind of album that's sort of psychedelic-ish. But it's all kind of going back to the uh, Chris Stapleton sound, the you know the Tyler Childress, the um, those guys, you know that that sound that way, and you, that have a beard, and you know kind of don't look like your typical country musician these days because they come kind of from Appalachia. They are to country music what jd vance is you know the literature the hillbilly elegy guy they talk about drug problems in appalachia they're not slick polished country musicians that are talking about taking your girl down some dirt road in your dodge ram had to do that uh, you know, and, 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 and having a few beers, this is about real problems, which is decidedly unpopular. And it's definitely unwoke unless you come from a certain genre. So I'm interested in learning more about this music and some of the people that do it. Hope we get it. Hope you get an interview with him. Uh, I mean, just hearing hearing his story, like you said, how you come up with the characters. But it, it's interesting. All the the storytellers you're mentioning, they all have that same voice. And you wouldn't grindy gravelly, it, grindy gravelly. It's it's not the mainstream type of voice, but it lends perfectly to storytelling. That guitar that he was playing in that video, that's like a Gibson Hummingbird or something, isn't it? Or, I don't know. I haven't seen the video. Okay, uh, it's kind of got a lot of the body is dark with kind of a sunblast uh, sunburst on around the the hole and and yeah. then it's got the pick guards has got all that sort of colorful stuff on it yeah it could be yeah, yeah. If, it, if it's an original hummingbird that's a valuable guitar yeah but it's not as big it doesn't have a dreadnought type body to yeah. it it's got a smaller body uh, a friend of mine had had one of those he an older gentleman uh, passed away but yeah. uh, he, he had they're a, nice it, very very it's a neat guitar i mean you can't get them anymore like the the old i mean i think his was like from you got to work to 40, fret them. 40s 50s i mean they're the fretboard's high oh, yeah. and tight yeah so all right so we're going to talk a little bit about uh the case for building wealth with stocks not homes all right now you know it has been the mantra for many, many, many decades, that the way to build wealth is to have a home, make payments on it, pay it off, and then that's going to be your biggest asset. And that's really worked well. And it may continue to work well, given that uh, we're having inflation and things of that nature. Uh, home ownership is a, is a form of security. It makes one feel like one has a place to go if there is nothing else is working. And uh, I would never speak against home ownership. There's a distinct difference between owning investments like stocks and homes. A home doesn't have any earnings. 
It has nothing that is going on inside its envelope of being a home that is uh, potentially going to propel the house higher other than pure supply and demand for real estate and potentially inflation. Um, a, a, a stocks and the ownership in companies have earnings and they have innovation and human endeavor within the company to drive the earnings higher. You guys, I, I made my point. You make yours. An interesting distinction that they don't draw in the article um, is homes versus properties. Um, you know, you, you live in your home. You know, your home is, like you said, Tom, the security, where you go. Um, properties, you know, could be you could have rental properties. Yeah. Now, a rental property. Which have earnings. Which have earnings has a cash flow to it. Um, what they're looking at purely um because we're, we're in an, uh, an environment with inflation and the idea of, well, you own a, a physical asset and it inflates. Um, historically, though, going back to 1972, this is from 1972 to 2021, uh, the S&P returned an average annualized of 12.47% uh, versus residential housing as measured by a Case-Shiller index of 5.41%. So about double uh, the S&P 500 is about double what the uh, housing prices. Yeah. Um, the, you have to look at all the, the, uh, the factors that go into owning property. So let's say you do own property as, you know, a landlord, you're, it's a rental property. Well, to really, do well with rental properties, you need to have scale uh, because, you know, you're going to have maintenance, upkeep, and if you're doing it yourself, that's only, generally, that's the only way you can be profitable if you do it yourself. And if you have three or four properties, you have to do it yourself because you can't afford to hire somebody else to do it or it eats away all your margin. So to really scale it out, um, you know, that's when leverage comes into play. Um, Invitation home. Invitation Homes, hey, they leveraged it, or they, they, they scaled it. They scaled it big time. <laughs> Real quick. Yeah. Um, they went from zero to hero. Right, right. That's a thing that a company we own called Blackstone, they bought a bunch of rental properties. Right. But and this isn't to knock rental properties by, by any stretch of the imagination. They can be a good long-term investment. But they have different properties of than a stock. You know, a stock is portable. Um, you're not locked into a one location. It's Liquidity. liquid. Exactly. Um, you know, you, you you can't just up and sell a house. I mean, you can, but you might get a fire sell price. You don't know. Uh, with a stock, it's, you know, every day you know the market value if it's a, you know, high volume stock. Uh, but liquidity uh, is key. Um, and it, when you're investing in a stock, uh, it's a passive, uh, investment. So you, you don't have the sweat equity. Now we tell people if they're good at property, if, if they've done it, they know what they're doing, they should get a better return from their rental properties than you would owning a portfolio of stocks. If they employ leverage and do it wisely. Exactly. That's going to be kind of the big 
That's the key thing. You're going to have to borrow some money against that property. And probably the more, the better, because yep. then you're going to get a nice return on your invested capital. That is the money you invest in it without the leverage. Right. So you pay a hundred, a uh, million dollars for the property. You might borrow, uh, 750,000. The 250 is actually your invested money. What kind of return can you get on it? So you're going to get the rents. Hopefully the rents will pay down the mortgage. So you'll begin to increase your equity that way. Then you're going to get whatever appreciation. And that can be a very nice return. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have to use leverage, which is a little scary, you know, because, I mean, you know, now you've borrowed money against this thing. Right. It's got to be paid back. And we're, that's why these real estate guys, when they get one property paid off, they go mortgage it and go buy another one. They're always rolling their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their, their debt over onto another thing. And like with anything, it's what you pay for the asset, uh, be it a stock, anything. Uh, but with rental property, especially, you know, you're, we've been in an environment where the prices have appreciated a lot more than they have historically in a short period of time. And, you know, you, if you pay more for something, anything, more than likely the future returns will be lower. And if you're buying something. Not if you're brilliant. <laughs> not if you're brilliant. Um, it, it, so it's all about the price you pay for it. Um, it, it depends on how much time you're going to put into it, your expertise with it, the leverage that you have on it. Um, and, you know, leverage is a, a, something that we do not recommend doing with stocks because we're talking about the the mark to market only if you're right <laughs> yeah no, i'm just kidding <laughs> but where you have the mark to market you know what that stock's worth and if the if it goes the the wrong way on you then you get a margin call and you have to liquidate at the worst possible time and leverage can get you into a lot of trouble real quick with stocks the problem with stocks and leverage is liquidity mm-hmm. the what you got going for you in real estate if you leverage it is the lack of liquidity that is the inability to get out of it any day the market's trading and therefore you don't have the same kind of price movements in commercial real estate that you have in stocks now there are REITs that you can buy that own a lot of commercial real estate. It's typically pretty highly leveraged. But the problem there, and it can be a plus and a minus in owning real estate inside of a REIT, is the liquidity thing. You know, we saw the prices of REITs in 2020 drop 30, 40% or more plus even yeah and uh you know the the problem the the real estate itself probably didn't drop that much but the stocks that own the real estate did they turned out to be a screaming buy Mm -hmm. when they got low like that but nobody knew it was going to be that way at the time right so if you build wealth in a house you're building wealth in something that's not that liquid if you build wealth in stocks you're building wealth in something that is very liquid. And the temptation 
is to look at it every day and fool with it. Right, right. You look at uh, you know inflation adjustments too. You th- you're looking at different types of properties, and th- this is this is the beauty of publicly traded REITs, for example. You know, different REITs have different cost. Of, well, we call it colas, uh, where they can raise the rents. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So, if you look at um, large commercial properties those would have a different inflation adjustment uh, time period than like uh, an apartment building complex. Um, so certain pieces of real estate, they can adjust the rents up quicker because uh, it might not be a long-term lease. It's a shorter duration. And so they can adjust it higher. And so it acts more like a floating rate uh, type of security where they can adjust up for inflation. Um, right. And the market prices that in already too, you know, cause the market's looking at inflation and it looks at the, the prices or these, these companies and it prices that into the stock price. Right. <coughs> All right. You're going to have to talk now cause <laughs> microphone's falling off. So what's the next thing you want to discuss? Well, we're, we we're talking about inflation and uh, interest rates and ha- how that has an impact on various asset classes, you know, specifically real estate. Um, but another big talking point right now, you see it on uh, most of the, the news stations right now, you know, the, the yield curve. Um, and the yield curve has recently inverted. Now, if you want to talk a little bit what the yield curve is <laughs> and um, – Sure, what yeah. does it what mean? Is it? <laughs> what is it? What is it? <laughs> so, uh, you know, to put it uh, simply, um, the yield curve is, you know, a plot. So if you take uh, government bonds, treasuries, um, and you take treasuries of different maturities, so there's three-month treasury bills, there's 10-year treasury notes, there's two-year treasury notes, there's 30-year treasury bonds. And you basically look at their interest rates um, and uh, you plot their interest rates and then you just draw a line, you know, starting with the lowest uh, maturity uh, treasury bill to the highest maturity (coughs) maturity treasury bond. And typically during uh, a normal environment uh, when the economy is... Uh, healthy when the economy is growing uh, that plot the the curve of the slope uh, is usually upward sloping which means that uh, treasury uh, bills bonds of lower maturities usually have a lower yield than uh, bonds of higher maturities and and the reason for that is simple if you were to lend money you know for a year versus 30 years, you would obviously be expected to uh, get compensated for the extra uh, duration of the 30-year bond. So if you're, like you a six-month CD versus a two-year exactly, CD. Yes. So um, under normal circumstances, the yield curve is upward sloping. What's been happening recently is, and this is not the first time that's hap- this is happening, by the way, is that the curve is flattening, which means that uh interest rates on uh bonds of uh shorter maturities are you know similar to the interest rates on bonds of longer maturities 
depending on the maturity that you look at, the yield curve uh, has also inverted at certain places, which means that shorter duration uh, bonds have a higher yield than longer duration bonds. So this typically happens when uh, the forecast for future growth uh, and future uh, inflation expectations start declining so money starts going into uh, longer duration bonds um, and all that means is that uh, the risk taking appetite of people you know people uh, investors typically invest in you know say stocks or they take uh, invest in riskier assets uh, these investors are willing to invest uh, in uh, longer duration bonds because they don't expect uh, growth rate uh, and the economy basically to grow uh, as fast as it has been. I, I hope that was that was clear. <laughs> uh, so, what we've seen recently is that this curve is inverted, and historically, this uh, has been uh, an ominous sign. Not always, uh, but sometimes when this happens, uh, it's uh, it's a precursor to a slowing economy and a recession. Not always. All right, that's a great time to stop and take a break. In the second half of the hour, we'll get into what that yield curve inversion actually means. And it seems that the um, quote-unquote... I thought you didn't want us to talk about that. You said well, was, after Adarsh explained it, it I always... The peanut gallery you, you is said, chirping. You said we gotta go. Would we gotta go. It. You're listening to the Tom Dupree show with I Adarsh Mestru. I think these Mestru. are smarter than you give them credit for. Mike Johnson. These listeners. They're actually, some of them, brilliant. And Tom Dupree, the voice of all voice. We will be back in just a few minutes with more of the Tom Dupree show. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us at Darsh Ministry, Mike Johnson and our host, Tom Dupree. And where this segment's going to go, I don't know. So, All right. Well, I, we were talking about yield curve inversion. It's not something the average person, as I said a minute ago, understands. But I think it's something that people might in, intuitively understand. And let me just describe something from history that really happened in the early eighties when interest rates went sky high after Paul Volcker had been appointed as the head of the fed and they declared that they were going to watch M one, which is checking account money. The most liquid form of money there is M two is like savings account. They had all the way up to like M five, you know, but they were going to watch the growth of M one. And, uh, you know, the Fed had very few tools at its, at its disposal back then. But they were able to, with the tools they had, they were able to accomplish amazing things. Short-term interest rates got all the way up to 20%. Prime rate was obscenely expensive. This is a very short-term, even money market funds were paying like 17 18%. And everybody knew that that would be the end of anybody that borrowed money because there's no way you can borrow money at 20% for any business enterprise unless you're a drug dealer or something like that and, you know, make money at it. At the same time, the 30-year U.S. Treasury was trading at a yield of 12%. You had almost an 8% invert between very, very short-term money and 30-year treasuries. Why? I think it's a lot more basic than I think everybody knew. Or the bond market sometimes has this own mind of its own. They knew that rates wouldn't stay that high forever. And the place to own was on the long end. Because when rates finally started coming down, that's where you're going to get the huge rally, especially with discounts. Not current coupon, although on treasuries it doesn't matter because there's no call provision. So they could go from par to 190, you know, and, you know, they'll, they'll, They'll just keep going up, but it's still harder for a premium bond to trade higher than it is a discount. And everybody knew that there was going to be a rally at some point. Rates had to come down. The market knew it. The market knows things. It has a collective wisdom that nobody's publishing in uh, some kind of a, a journal somewhere, but it's out there if you'll read it. It's like observing nature. You know, you can walk around down at the Kentucky River and get a feel for what season it is and what's happening just by listening to birds and feeling the air. Same thing with the markets. It's exactly, not exactly the same, but it's very similar. Because the markets, while we see them on screens and stuff, they are a force of nature. They're a form of the natural world. And so uh, yeah, they're man-made, but nonetheless, they are a force of nature. And uh, 
you know, inversions in the yield curve sometimes point to a lot of different things. What did a lot of goofy people do, myself included? Put their money in money market funds. They're paying 17%. The long end's only 12. Stupid move. Once rates begin to drop, your short-term rates drop very quickly. Your long-term rate, you've already locked it in. You got that sucker for 30 years. Right. One of the other things that the 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 media touts is well, you know, it indicates a potential recession. You know, it, it's a indicator that the market's going to go down. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, you have to be very careful of yeah. adhering to those kinds of. I things. mean, a ten basis point inversion is basically nothing, right? Um, and. In the past, you know, historically, uh, there's uh, a period after inversions that markets, you know, continue to rise. Um, you know, nothing, nothing out there says today is the day that the market's going to go down. And you have to be very careful not to let those kind of influences um, dictate uh, major moves in your investment portfolio. Right. Now, it was interesting. The yield curve inverted uh, right before, I guess it was late December, early January, uh, early January of 2020. Um, so, did the, did, were they, was the bond market predicting COVID? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, it, I'm, I'm being facetious there, but it, well, it's. Well, the biggest one I ever saw was 99. Leading up to, it turning into the year 2000, there was a huge industry built around this notion that everything was going to stop working on Y2K, as you recall. And certain catastrophes were being predicted. Strangely, the stock market kept rallying through December of 99 when one would expect if there was going to be a catastrophe, a fiasco of some sort. Stock market would be just dropping like a rock. The stock market told you Y2K was going to be a non-event. And they were right. Now, stock markets can be wrong sometimes too. But, uh, you know, if you pay attention Pay attention to what these things are telling you. You can learn. You don't necessarily have to be fantastic at interpreting things. Just watch them. Over time, you'll learn. That's what Charlie Munger and Buffett have done really well. They're like bird watchers in their old age. You know, they've never made any stupid, bold moves. They just look at all the information, and then they make an investment based on that. Right. I mean, as as you said, you know the the market uh, does have a a collective wisdom, and uh, th- there is a lot to learn, you know, from it. Um, uh, because oftentimes uh, the price of a stock or the market itself uh, reflects a lot of underlying realities. 
So it's easy to uh, second guess uh, the market, but the market really uh, has a certain wisdom of its own. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily scream it in your face. Right. You got to be watching. Mm-hmm. And from an investor's standpoint, um, you know, there's so much noise out there. There's so so many loud voices um, that are saying, you know, do this now. You know, always this urgency of of taking some sort of action. Sometimes that that's necessary. You know, be it you know risk mitigation. You know, it might be overly concentrated in one area or one stock or whatever it may be. Um, that's one thing. Uh, but if it's a call to make a drastic move with your investments, all to cash, all into stocks, all into this, all into that, be very, very careful and keep your emotions in check when those things are happening. Because, you know, the whole point of an investment portfolio is to invest long term and to ride through. And if you're properly invested, to ride through those inevitable volatile times in the market and during those volatile times make those incremental changes to try to benefit yourself. Right. Now, so what we started off talking about was kind of real estate versus stocks. And real estate as such is a commodity. Gold is a commodity. Uh, Silver. Oil and ag are commodities. But there's a difference between investing in real estate, gold or silver, and oil and agriculture. Oil and agriculture get consumed. Real estate, gold, and silver really don't, although silver can be used in an industrial setting. But the silver you invest in is not used for industrial purposes it's used as an investment thing. So when you're investing in these uh, perishable commodities, you are really investing in the use of them, not holding them as a static item. So there's a different dynamic to it. You're very familiar with commodity investing. What's your feeling about the difference between investing in, you know, hard assets like real estate and things and your more uh, consumable commodities? So, you know, certain uh, commodities are, you know, for example, real estate, uh, you know, the the demand and supply dynamic for real estate is different. So first of all, there is every commodity, there's, uh, there's only a, a finite amount. You cannot create more of these commodities. Well, that's now. not completely true with ag. Uh, except for ag, yes, I was just about to say that. Uh, so um, t- technology does help you, uh, you know, perhaps uh, find some of these commodities which were previously unfound or, uh, uh, you know, 
for example, with crude, we saw that in the last few decades, you know, drilling became more efficient. They were able to go and drill into places where, which were previously harder to do. Um, but uh, if you look at the main difference between, say, uh, something like ag, I would differentiate even between ag and you know crude oil. Both are consumed, but ag is dependent on things which are outside of uh, human control in a lot of cases, uh, primarily the weather, floods. Uh, Consumption. Yes. So, um, whereas crude oil, uh, we know, you know, we have a pretty good handle on how much there is. And if, if we really wanted to, if there was a, apart from, you know, regulatory hurdles or, uh, you know, geopolitical hurd- hurdles, if we really wanted to, we could get the, you know, the oil that, that is needed. Uh, something like gold and silver are what you would call uh, monetary commodities. So they don't really, they're not consumed, except for silver, of course, as you mentioned, but they are held in portfolios e- either as a hedge or as insurance against unforeseen circumstances. So gold tends to do well, you know, in periods when there's war or there's, you know, something unforeseen happens. What about rock? <laughs> so a rock is also... Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, th- there have been periods... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the pet rock i'm, I'm sorry yeah, yeah I, I just had to say that i'm i'm i'm, I'm not meaning to joke with you no, so i mean diamond I is a rock did. i yes. was just gonna yeah. say a diamond is a rock too uh, yeah. so is gold gold is also a rock right uh, um <laughs> oh a darce that is so good <laughs> uh and and uh there is a finite supply of uh, rocks on Earth, unless you know, <laughs> unless you go. To, <laughs> uh, you They're not making any more. You could go to another planet, uh, you know, if you were friends with Elon Musk. You know, you, you could go to another planet and get rock from elsewhere. Um, That'd be some really good rock, right there. <laughs> no, I, I just, I think the thing I was really thinking about is in all of these things whether it be gold silver ag oil you know the only way those commodities have any value is management somebody some human uh enterprise that puts them to use for some sort of productive purpose. Uh, So really, you know, when you're studying investments and thinking about, you know, how to invest money, you're really studying how the world works because uh, you're not going to have the kind of human activity you know, without these certain commodities uh, that uh, are used on a daily basis, including rock, rocks. Uh, it's enterprise 
that gives everything else its value. Take away enterprise and ingenuity, and you've taken away the value of any commodity, including gold or any of it. And that's why I like to invest in enterprise in the in the last analysis, I'd rather invest in enterprise than I would the raw commodities, even including real estate. Right. Well, in the a location in real estate is only worth what somebody can make of it. Right. Well, in the enterprise itself is used to obviously is used to dealing in the commodity that their business is in, and so a commodity, raw commodities are, are can be extremely volatile in price. Just you know, pure supply demand. Um, I mean, you look at just oil prices. You know, seventy, one hundred and thirty, back to a hundred. You know, about, coming off of negative in twenty twenty. Well, um, sort of, sort of. Um, say, say, let's say 20, 20 to 30 yeah. real. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, there wasn't a lot of trading. Yet. Yeah. But the point is a lot of volatility in the raw commodity. And that's These, always a forward looking assessment of what it's going to be used for and how many people are going to need it. Right. Right. Supply and demand. Um, but the enterprise that is refining the oil or mining the natural resource um they're used to dealing with that volatility and they can mitigate that volatility to some extent you know just purely from hedging the price of the commodity which they can do internally they can mitigate only if they're nimble nimble but also through the way they manage the enterprise. Yeah. You look at their balance sheet, how they manage the growth of the enterprise. And that's all management. Exactly. So it it, it all it, it stems from the natural resource, but you have the enterprise that can convert that to something that's usable in the management of the enterprise. Look at oil. Everybody's, oh, if we only had the, um, you know, the, What's that pipe XL pipeline? Uh, Keystone. Keystone. That's tar. <laughs> yeah, you can only really refine it t- two places in the U.S. at Whiting, Indiana, and on the Gulf Coast. It is not a high grade of oil. The thing to do is to make it easier to drill in this country. Forget Canada. Let them sell it to the Chinese. You know, I don't give a rat's. You know what about Canada these days with? that goofball they got as prime minister we should be mining or or drilling for our own oil getting sweet texas crude that you don't have to do 10 steps of refining extra you know to 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 get it forget the xl pipeline keystone i mean it'd be nice to have it but it's going to make canadians a lot of money you know let warren buffett's trains bring it down you know whatever Whatever. You want to close? You They're want me to do it my way. <laughs> All right. I guess I get to close this time. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Mushroom. Mike Johnson, our host, Tom Dupree. If you want to hear more of the Tom Dupree Show, we're on a podcast. You can go to our website, dupreefinancial.com, under the blog and radio tab if you'd like to hear other episodes. We appreciate you listening, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>